0: thank you yeah Sepoy? okay so sepoys are indians who are undermining in indian civilization the term was used in the british era when when the british used to hire indians as sepoys actually most of the most of the fighting against indians by the british was done by uh, indian sepoys can you hear me louder okay is this better is this better okay Thank you very much for a wonderful introduction and for inviting me to this I mean this is the first time I've come to India House and whoever put this together has done a, an amazing job. Uh, I'm uh, indeed honored to come back because Houston has always uh, been a wonderful place to come and interact. I just uh, saw Durga Agarwal after 20 years and he's somewhere here here. And the first thing he told me is, you know, you know I was, he invited me to his house uh, because I was a sort of a troublemaker at the time and so he invited me to his house and he had a big gathering in his house and he just saw me now, reminded me of that and he said, you know, you were the first person to tell us 20 years ago that yoga is going to become a 20 billion dollar industry and that time we didn't believe it. And I also said, I believe. you believed it at that time, other people didn't believe it and, and so good for you. And then I also said that if we aren't, if we aren't entering that field, uh, it will become Christian yoga. And, and that is our dilemma now. So, that is sort of what has happened. So, I am glad because every time I have come to Houston, I have had a chance to meet wonderful people and exchange uh, new ideas. To understand where we are as Hindus, Indians, it is very important to uh, also for us to reverse the gaze on the West. You might say, why should we worry about others? The reason is that the domination of the West, the English language which I am speaking right now, the institutions of discourse, knowledge, education, media, uh, you know, the World Bank, the WTO, all these international regulations and whatnot, the whole legal system. All of that is so much dominated by Western thought, Western ways of looking at the world that we are part of it. I mean, this is the result of the last 500 years of western power over the world. So, in order to understand who we are, we have to understand the context in which we have been raised. And we have assumed that's the normal, that that is universal. Actually, that is not universal. And so, we have to to reverse our gaze at the west. We have to look at the west also in order to understand its history, how it came about, why it is what it is. uh, And then understand how we were depicted by the west. Uh, Because of how they are, because of the way they are gazing at the world, they are looking at us a certain way. And we will be able to see very clearly why we were, why certain images of us were created. And then we can understand that over a period of several generations, Indians internalized that idea. Indians started really thinking about themselves in that way. We were educated in the, for for the last 150 years uh, in English medium. And even in the Indian medium, the, the history we were taught about ourselves, the kind of ideas that were given, the kind of values that were given and what was removed from our our, uh, traditional way of learning. All that shaped who we are and we became colonized. So, as uh, colonized people, uh, we have not yet become properly decolonized. We think we are decolonized just because we are independent in terms of politics and now we are independent maybe financially becoming more independent. But ideologically, intellectually, uh, we are not. And you can see some evidence, most studies of South Asia, most scholars of South Asia, most big conferences on South Asia, most academic journals, prestigious journals on South Asia are not within South Asia, are not controlled by us but controlled by someone else. And we know that in the British era, Indology was started to uh, educate East India Company officials about India before sending them to work in India and control and rule and dominate the people and be one be one of them and be able to mix with them to in order to uh, you know in order to negotiate better and get the better of them. The, a whole range of about 20 or more uh, indology colleges and universities were set up in England to train uh, people. And after the World War was well, Second World War, uh, the British Empire crumbled. And so, it was decided that U.S. will take the lead and replace England's role. And South Asian studies which was created with the help of U.S. Congress enacted a bill of area studies. And South Asia was one of the areas with government funding to do what Indology used to do during the British times. To train a whole lot of westerners to think a certain way about us, to project that image onto us, to train our own kids, who would go back to India and start becoming more western than the westerners themselves. So, this whole colonization process has a long history and a mechanism and it's not just accidental. So, to understand ourselves, we must understand this mechanism which has produced some of these issues. Therefore, I'll start by telling you a little bit about the west seen through Hindu eyes or seen through Indian eyes as an outsider. And this is a topic I discuss a lot with westerners and I look forward to my colleague Eberhardt his comments on what I am going to say. Because it's nothing personal, it's just, a, it's just our way of seeing world history uh, which, you know, in, actually the west has been saying things about us for a long time. So, the west has to get used to the fact that the Indians will now be saying things from their point of view. Chinese already do this. Chinese are reversing the ways of the west for a long time. Arabs have been doing it. So, you know, Indians are also going to be doing it. Now, the West is a product of what I call synthetic unity, contrasted with India's integral unity. Indian civilization was not based on going and conquering and bringing a peace back from Africa, conquering, bringing a peace back from, you know, somewhere, not con- bringing back treasures, bringing back knowledge. Bring- it was not based on assimilating, compiling, conquered uh, artifacts. But western civilization from the very beginning, you can say, Roman times, it has been based on conquering others, other civilizations and bringing them, bringing that knowledge not only physical as, you know, land and gold and slaves and all that but ideas, knowledge, science, all of that. So, when you put together a collection like a museum compilation, a curating. And then try to rationalize it and, and make it harmonious. That's a synthetic unity. Whereas an integral unity is one where things emerge from within, from within the seed, from within the DNA, things evolve, evolve, evolve. And Indian civilization because of the, the because it was not based on foreign conquest is a, is an integral unity. And I argue that in detail in the book being different. Now, the synthetic unity has Always got these ruptures, these scars where something is being forced together with glue, and it's never as harmonious as a organic unity. You know, it's like you take you take a, one organic entity and another organic entity and sort of glue them together. It's not the same thing. A big rupture is between the Abrahamic religions and what is called Hellenistic tradition, which is the Greek tradition. Interestingly, when the Greek were taken over, and uh, you know conquered and brought into Western control, the Greek civilization. Uh, the religion of the Greeks was considered sort of pagan, pre-Christian, bad, wrong, evil, and sort of a suppressed. And but in the in the Renaissance it was Greek thought which had to be brought in, the logic, the rationality. So Greek tradition got kind of digested, which means very selectively appropriated what could fit, what was useful was brought in and what would be contradicting Christianity and so on was not brought in. So, this business of complaining about India getting digested, Indian civilization digested, there are, pres- there are precedents for that. Others have been digested and you can see what happens to them. That they are taken apart, some useful parts are brought in and others, the rest of it is left out. So, it's very interesting that when we, today when we use the word orient, We think of, you know, oriental is, uh, you know, Asian. And we think that uh, western includes Greek. We think that way. But there was a time long ago when Greek was considered part of the orient. Because it was before they had been digested. Greek was considered oriental way back. See. And the idea of occident is the Europe which is on the west of that. And Greece was, Greece and further was, was orient. And so, how what was Orient got digested become part of the West, you see, is is an interesting thing. And that digestion is a synthetic unity and the West has never recovered from it. One of the problems with uh, Christianity and science and I am looking forward to uh, Eberhard's comment on that uh, because he will speak on that shortly. Uh, The problem I see as a scientist with uh, reconciling Judeo-Christianity and science is that uh, science derived a lot from the Hellenistic tradition uh, where the rest of its philosophy, metaphysics was abandoned and the rational part was brought in, grafted into uh, Judeo-Christianity. And this has never been reconciled because a whole lot of assumptions of uh, what Christianity, a whole lot are just not scientifically tenable. Uh, So, uh, this is a very major part of uh, the work I do is science and Various traditions, and the method of inquiry that the Rishis have is very much like a scientific inquiry because they are questioning, they are challenging. It's not one fixed book; it's not God who lays down one one set of texts and says this is it. Uh, these are discoveries that they are making through their own state of consciousness, much like a scientist makes discoveries in a laboratory. So, except these, this is the inner laboratory rather than the external laboratory. But it is still a laboratory that the Rishis have. So the the uh, uh, story of the West as a series of expansions uh, with violence, conquest, colonization, and taking the uh, conquered civilization apart, uh, uh, taking part of the things that is useful and digesting it, and uh, throwing out the rest, calling it bad names. So, for instance, calling the calling them pagans, uh, the pre-Christian Europeans. Pagan is not the word they use for themselves. Pagan means from something like country bumpkin. Like you have some country bumpkin. So, the civilized people were the Christians. And those who wouldn't accept it were called the pagans. And over a period of time, the so-called pagans started calling themselves pagans. That's when you are colonized. When you start calling calling yourself by the name that somebody else has given to you. This is sort of like the Indians getting colonized. So, um, this uh, uh incompatibility so so in this synthetic unity of the west a primary area of my interest is this unity of uh, religion and science which is still being attempted it's still unfinished templeton foundation gives away millions and millions of dollars every year to try and bring together science and religion i've been part of that i've co-sponsored something with them more than a decade ago and i've followed them and the irony is that a large amount of the science and religion enterprise today, which seeks to make Christianity, Judah Christianity, seem more scientific, is based on a lot of appropriations from Hinduism and Buddhism. A lot of uh, consciousness studies, you know, when quantum physics came out, consciousness was uh, how to, uh, the role of consciousness in physics became very important. And People looked for models. They could find them in Vedanta. They couldn't find them anywhere else. Heisenberg, Schrodinger, all these guys were very much informed by this. So, uh, the early years of the Journal of Consciousness Studies and the Consciousness Studies Conference in Tucson, which is happening every two years, I used to attend those. They were filled with either Hindus or Buddhists or Indians or Western Westerners who had studied them, talking about those models uh, as sort of the wave of the future. But over a period of time. The, Indi- the Hindu Buddhist sources were removed, and these things got gradually Christianized. But you see, you can change the vocabulary. You can you can look for old uh, old uh, sources in Greek thought, or say that Jesus was the first yogi, and you can say all that. But the fact is that underlying all that, the metaphysics is still incompatible. If you really nitpick, you can find that the metaphysics is not very compatible. So, the history of uh, if you look at the history of uh, scientific contributions from India, you will find that it was, there was never a clash between science and religion. The kind of clash that the west is now trying to reconcile between the two uh, never existed in the first place. So, people who were into mathematics and astronomy and uh, Ayurveda, you know, healing systems and all that, they were the same people who were also writing Vedanta and doing uh, philosophy and, you know, all our metaphysics. It's not like there was a science camp and a religion camp and they were at war like we have in the western history. And this uh, ceasefire between this, between Judeo-Christianity and science in the west is only a few hundred years old and it's still not uh, fully there. So, the the, uh, role of uh, appropriations from India into modern science continues. India, uh, the neuroscience for instance, today, Cognitive science, neuroscience, uh, many models of life sciences are heavily borrowing ideas from India. Uh, The whole meditation, the whole mindfulness movement, and many other things like that are basically from Hindu Buddhist sources. And this is the process of digestion I talk about. So, you know, what I'm saying is the early digestion uh, into Western civilization was Hellenistic or Greek, Greek thought oriented. And they could not accept the religion part. But they were accepting all these other parts. But now, India is at the cutting edge of being the source of digesting, digestion of knowledge. This is a very huge story. It's not just a simple thing like Christian yoga. It's, yoga is the sort of tip of the iceberg. But the, the uh, amount of knowledge systems from our tradition that are being digested, brought in, clean, they will call it cleaning, scrubbing, uh, removing all the things that are uncomfortable to them, they don't want to accept and turning them into some kind of western ideas. And no, new people getting Nobel prizes, uh, and then getting, Christi- then these things becoming Christianized. This is a very huge industry and I'm chasing this all the time. Uh <coughs> now, West, the, the a term I use is western universalism, which means that at any stage of its development, Wherever West is, however much it has assimilated, digested, conquered, brought in, synthesized, wherever it is, it's, a, it's an evolu- evolving thing. It's a very aggressive thing and it does a lot of good things also. Because uh, when, you, when you go and take things from many people and take the good parts, you also become a collector of many good things. And you have all, a lot of pieces to solve a jigsaw puzzle which these separate people could not have done. So, I could argue that if I take some assets from you and you and you and put them together, like, you know, a corporate merger, a company consolidates many other companies, puts them together. It's a synthetic unity because they have different, they have different corporate cultures, they are not always compatible. But over time you try to resolve them. There is also some value because you can bring things together which separately they were not able to do. So, the west has achieved a lot of things as a result of its digestion power, its ability to digest. Now, the the term western universalism I use to refer to whatever is the western thought based on its own history of all these things happening, which it claims to be universal. So, rather than saying this is western philosophy, this is western idea of religion, this is western uh, idea of whatever, uh, the claim is that this is universal knowledge. And because it is claimed to be universal knowledge there and because of the power and glamour of the west, everybody in the Other countries is encouraged very successfully to start adopting it as their own way of thinking. So Western universalism becomes dangerous because others accept it, and some of the biggest arguments and debates I have are with Indians who are not willing to accept uh, that something is Western universalism, and we may have a you know a better alternative. For instance, in two thousand or two thousand one, I got a request from IIT Kharagpur. They were, they were about to do their 50th anniversary and they wanted to do many conferences on various disciplines and they wanted funding from Infinity Foundation. And uh, out of their list of conferences, the one that I liked was Mind Sciences. So, I wrote to them saying, I am very interested in Mind Sciences. Can you send me your, your program? And they sent me this program of uh, uh, Mind Sciences, different speakers. There was not a single talk on Indian, at Indian theories of mind. It was all Freud and Jung and this one and that one, all western theories of mind. Whether it was a western speaker or an Indian speaker, the theories were all western theories of mind. So, I wrote back saying that I'm, you know, I would be interested in sponsoring the mind sciences, provided you have at least one panel on Indian theories of mind. I got this letter, which I still keep on file. and Once in a while, I show it to them when I go there. You see, like, My exchange with Durga Agarwal, I can say 20 years ago we said that. Now, I tell that to the IIT Kharagpur also people. I got their letter saying, Sir, we are scientists, we are not saffron people, we are not politicians, we are not chauvinists. Sir, we can't do this Indian mind thing you are talking about. Okay. So, I I have lot of friends, lot of westerners who I kind of nurtured and have many discussions with. So, there are some westerners, I have always been saying, oh, you have taken so much from India, never given anything back and they've always said, okay, tell me when to give, what, how do I do it? I well, mean, it's one man, how do I do it? So, I called them up and said, now is your chance to give something back to India. I want you to go and be on a panel at IIT Kharagpur and talk about Indian mind science. So, one was Bob Thurman who is a Buddhist. So, I said, you talk about Buddhist, how Buddhism contains mind science and how you have practiced it and how you are teaching it at Columbia University. One guy in Cambridge had translated the Patanjali Yoga Sutra and I said, you teach, tell them how at Cambridge University, what benefits they are getting by studying Patanjali Yoga Sutra and do not use English substitutes, use non-translatable originals. Tell them who was your guru, who initiated, how you practice it, how you personally benefit from it, how your students benefit from it, how western civilization benefits from it. I had one Sri Aurobindo, a western guy, I had somebody in Kundalini and Tantra. So, I put this collection together. I took their bios and their abstracts and I sent it to IIT Kharagpur and I said, I would propose something like this as my panel. They immediately accepted it because they are all white people. You see, you see the complex, the inferiority complex, that's colonization. Which means that if the westerners come and say, you are okay, we must be okay. After all, we can't be all that bad if they are saying it, you see. like one very one nice gentleman gave me a book on how 150 great westerners have praised us, and he's got one one line on for each of them. And when I read through this, it's so naive actually, because some of those guys may have said one or two sentences like that, but when you really read their life work, what they've done is overall undermined. Overall, they've really undermined. I mean, I'm surprised he didn't have Wendy Doniger because because he probably knows uh, what we've said about her. But all those people have a lot of good things to say also. You have to read a lot more than just one liner here and there, you see. So, uh, we have this complex that we get legitimized when the other person legitimizes us. Uh, We have, you know, the idea is we've now made it to the high table. We can sit with them and we can be like them. And gosh, we can put our name on their building. We can uh, endow a chair with our name on it or something like that. So, we must have made it. This complex is very deep. So, uh, uh, in IIT Kharagpur, I utilize this complex to get my people in and i told them you are not going to talk on uh, american mind sciences you are going to call it dharma mind sciences hindu science buddhist science who is your guru where you went one of them learned under sri or bindo one of them uh, was in rishikesh and he has this guru so i said you must tell all those things show them slides of your guru all that stuff and let them know that's where it came from these guys and our panel our panel was the most successful panel these guys got standing ovations which means in india there is that hidden pride that pride is there along with the embarrassment and shame. So, if the Westerner put pushes the right button, then the pride comes out. Wow, you know, we are good. Oh my God, we are doing well. And and if unless that happens, then we are scared. If a guy like me says it, then, you know, we are chauvinists and so on. So, I have to use the right person to convey my message. See, I built a team like that. And they did so well that uh, many universities in India started inviting these people to talk on Indian mind sciences. And I, and I told them, accept every invite you get, I'll pay. We will give you a grant but don't turn down an invite. So, about 10 different events happened over a period of 4-5 or five years in various parts of India uh, with different people that we would send to talk about how Indian mind sciences and how they are influencing the west. And then gradually, the final victory was when we were invited to Delhi University because that was a bastion of uh, leftist kind of people. And when the momentum built, then the Delhi University also invited our group to give talks. By then, we had built a certain support system in India. A Lot of scholars, Indian scholars started joining this. Then we retired the westerners, we put the Indians in charge. Because we felt now, you know, okay, the westerners have done their job. Now, Indians should take it forward. So, we had this Indian psychology, Indian mind sciences movement. And um, I haven't put out a book or collected things but it would be quite a lot of work that we got done that has to be edited and put, to put together. Um, this resulted in several universities starting a course on Indian theories of psychology. And then they said we don't have a textbook, we can't just have lectures, we need a textbook. So, we sponsored a two-volume textbook on Indian theories of psychology, yeah, and those came out. And a, a, an organization called Indian, uh, in, uh, you know, academic scholars for Indian psychology was created. They now meet every year. And they have almost 150-200 members, Indian scholars teaching. If This is a discipline we've created that never even existed 15 years ago. It's now an academic discipline. You can go and get courses in Indian psychology. <laughs> so, this is This is sort of the, uh, just one example of, a lot of examples I can give you. Uh, And and my multi-volume series on U-turn and digestion and so on is a way to kind of put a whole lot of these things together. Psychology being one example, cognitive science, neuroscience, linguistics, botany, all kind of stuff, uh, you know, that Indians have contributed to the world. And we ourselves don't know and this has been hidden. And we need to uncover it. So, this is an important point. Now, the, coming back to the history of the West, as we call it, the West as we see it today. I mentioned the early part, you know, the role of Greek and Romans and things like that. But India was affected. Uh, the kind of British colonization of India was very seriously affected by the English experience in America. This is a point which scholars don't look at. But if you uh, you look at it, you will realize that the English started settling America around the early 1600s. And the East India Company was formed January 1, 1600. So, you had certain companies formed to colonize America, you know, come here, Slave trade and put all the stuff in trading with Native Americans. All that started here in the 1600s, about the same time uh, East India Company started doing this in India. And the East India Company wasn't the first. uh, There was the French East India Company, the British India Company wasn't the first. There was a Danish East India Company, there was a Dutch East India Company, there was a French East India Company. There were a lot of these different European powers competing for who gets into India. And so, the discourse was shaped very strongly, the British discourse on the other, the non white, was shaped very strongly in the Americas. There's a huge amount that American scholars, historians have written on how uh, white scholars uh, portrayed uh, the Native American as a savage. The Native Americans are savage, and we, the whites, are civilized. Our job is to conquer the frontier. The frontier is the territory we must conquer and make it civilized, part of civilization. So, that part which we have expanded, that land, that territory becomes civilized and that which we haven't yet conquered is called frontier. And uh, so, this whole business of capturing the frontier, expanding it till till the whole east, west coast, everything is taken over. And uh, in the process how the Native Americans are portrayed as sort of uh, inferior people, subhuman, whatever. Uh, And then the blacks, the same thing, the the history of uh, depiction of blacks as inferior people. This becomes a very strong uh, kind of a line of thinking and portrayal in, in uh, English language and western language uh, literature about other people at that time. And the first time it is utilized in uh, outside of the Americas is against Irish people. The Irish people, because Ireland is also colonized by England and the Irish people are, tra- are depicted as kind of, you know, racially inferior. All this happened before they start doing this in India. So, they have had good practice. The thinking machinery has had good practice of how to depict the other, how to find out that they are ill-treating the women, that they are abusing their children. The term regime change, we talk about Saddam Hussein regime change. The term regime change was used in the 1800s in India by the British with respect to Raja, that this king, we have to do regime change because he is violating human rights. He is bad guy. And they would get some evidence and. Convince themselves that they have to do it, and that in turn was earlier used in Ireland and in, against chiefs in Native American context. So, the, so some of the concepts and some of the tropes and some of the visual images, the cartoons, the you you, you see some old books in the 1800s published by uh, British indologists in which they talk about Hindu, you know what Hindu temple idol, their idol is evil, this kali, this that. And, this, that, or you, and you, then you compare with what are the similar writings about Native Americans and blacks and and Irish. You will see the comparison. It's, it's very similar. So, Irish were considered non-whites for a long time. There is a book called How the Irish Became White. It's a, it's a Harvard University Press. And it's a by, uh, uh, yeah, it's Harvard University Press. I bought a lot of copies and I give to my Irish friends. And they get shocked. They are not used to this. And I tell them that there is a story that uh, you see when the slaves got freed, then the whites did not want them to uh, uh, undercut the wages and get all the jobs. So, they created white unions, labor unions. So, it was white only. So, only whites could join these unions and get jobs to keep the blacks out. The question was when the Irish started migrating, And in Ireland they are colonized working under the British, don't have equal rights in Ireland because they are colony of Britain. And when that same Irish man migrates to America, then I the Englishman, should I consider him equal or not. So, the Irish were excluded from white unions because they were colonized people. And this was a source of tension, violence in Philadelphia. There was a military fight with gunfights and all that. People died. And then as a result of that, they declared a truce that from now on we will recognize Irish as white people. And that's the date when Irish became white in, in America. And there's also a book, How the Jews Became White Folks. Jews were not considered white folks two generations back. It's written by a Jew. Uh, 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 Brodkin is her last name. And uh, she's a UCLA anthropologist. So, you know, what I'm trying to tell you is this is a history of Western universalism, is a history of digestion. A history of who gets to be white on what terms and, and who does not. And today the whiteness is being negotiated by blacks. They don't want to be black, uh, white. And Hispanics who want to create their own identity. So, we have an issue like are we going to be? Are we going to become white? And on whose terms? Or are we going to have a separate identity of our own? Okay? These are important points. You have to understand the history of the West, of America, of whiteness, of Judaic Christianity to understand these kind of uh, nuances. So, I also have this idea that just like there was a frontier in America and the frontier people had to be demonized. Their religion had to be considered evil as an excuse to take over that land and convert them and raise their children to be different. I have this theory that India is the new frontier. Okay, India is the new frontier. So, this is why there is a whole demonization of India and it's uh, culture and religion and a complaint about human rights. And this is why there is in, at the same time a digestion of what is useful. Because Native Americans uh, culture wise were being demonized. But their land was being taken over. Their gold and silver were being taken over. Many of the their own agricultural techniques and what not were being taken, were being considered westernized. So, this business of with one hand you... Uh, assimilate and borrow and digest from somebody and with the other hand you demonize them, both going on simultaneously uh, is is, is a large part of what I study. And there is a whole syndrome uh, that western scholars have called the good cop and bad cop. Good cop and bad cop because in the frontier days in this country, uh, when the white guys would go and try to engage the native Americans, some some of the whites would go as good cops, means I am your friend. They'll settle there, take on local identity, name, convert, marry and they would be like, I'm one of you. So, these were the good cops. And the native Americans would gradually give in their, uh, give up their, uh, their sovereignty, their separateness. They would drop their guard and turn over control to these people that, okay, now you please speak for me. You go and help me out with the other white bad cops who are after me. So, the good cop is somebody who's going to help you with the bad cops. You see. But ultimately, after a while, the good cop would say, this is the best I can do, I think you should accept what the bad cop is saying. So, kind of like they were, if not directly in collusion, the effect was as if they were. And my, I learned the term from my boss. I was mentioning it this morning. Uh, my boss in the corporate world, I was a project manager in software. So, I my job was to get work done, you know. And so, he would always tell me, this guy is not good, you know, you should be tough on that. This guy, this. he would always, uh, criticizing various people on my team than asking me to be tough on them so that was my job but then i found one day when the when he's having a barbecue uh, when he's in his nice mood and he's giving cigars and he's you know all these so-called people that i'm i'm tough on he's being very chummy with all of them so later i asked him what is this you know i'm being very tough with them and you are kind of not you know you are just being the opposite he says because you are the bad cop i'm the good cop Your job is, that's your job. You have to be bad cop, I have to be the good cop. So, I learned this very interesting idea. I said, okay, you know, that's my job. I have to be bad cop. You know. And that's his job to be good cop. But then in another career, several years later in a different company, I got the chance to be the good cop. Yeah. So, this was a a large telecom company and I was vice president for strategic planning and business development and joint ventures. So, I would lead delegations to various places and cut deals with, you know. So, this was a delegation to uh, Japan and uh, KDD was the international carrier. So, we are going to meet with KDD, we are going to meet with Mitsubishi and we are going to cut close some very big strategic deals. And just before the delegation left, uh, the president giving us a final kind of his wise words. And so, he says, remember, Rajiv is the good cop. And then he looks at the lawyer and says, you are the bad cop. So, meaning the lawyer has to be very tough. The lawyer has to negotiate tough, no nonsense, tough terms. And if it upsets them, it upsets them. He has to do his job. And Rajiv's job is to uh, smooze smooth them and say, you know, don't worry. That's the way lawyers are. We'll be okay. Don't worry. Kind of keep the relationship, keep the deal going. So, this good cop, bad cop is part of western culture. We guys don't understand. So, when some good cop comes around, you know, we're incredibly naive on how to deal with it. So, incredibly naive. So I'm dealing with some. Uh, I'm dealing with some of the people. Uh, uh, my time is running out, so I will make it very quick. Uh, I'm dealing with a lot of people that trouble me in the Western Academy, and I have a problem convincing Indians because they see the good cop side. They see this guy comes. You know, he eats our, with his hands. He eats in our house. He's very comfortable. He actually eats on a banana leaf, as if that will make a difference. Yeah? And his wife wearing a sari, you know, she's got a bindi also. And he takes off his shoes and he does all this, you know. So, he's, a, he's very much on our side, sir. You don't know, he's a good man. So, they have not learnt that this is what is taught in anthropology. I mean, in Princeton, the Hinduism, this lady is retired, was taught by a Muslim lady. Her husband is a Pakistani. She was a Lebanese. She used to teach anthropology and Hinduism. She invited me to her house and she had a puja room. She had a puja room. All the deities are there. And she knows how to do puja just perfectly well. So this is part of the game. So this is this is part of the game, being able to uh, impress in the in this particular manner. And so uh, the the good cop, bad cop, and the, the India is the next frontier that has to be tamed. Uh, this is this has got both a left wing strategy and a right wing strategy. And that's another thing we are confused. We think that. Uh, the problems of depiction, unfair depiction, are only from the right, but not so. Actually, the right is more honest about it. I would rather have a right-wing opponent in this country because he's very straight and honest. He put his cards on the table and said, "This is what my Bible says, and that's how it is." At least I know where he's coming from. The left wing is very nuanced and very subtle and very underhand, and you know he tries to make, he try to say you know things that that you can't even figure out. And then the the latest cutting edge in uh, in this western universalism is postmodern thought. We are being told that postmodern thought has solved all these problems. But postmodern thoughts has made the discourse more sophisticated, taken it to another level, to another level of hubri. We can't even figure out what they are saying half the time. And it's very coded kind of language for themselves. And you see, came, postmodernism came uh, as a reaction in the west against western extreme uh, extremism, uh, Nazism, Communism, all these very extreme th- results of modernity created a backlash. So, people came up with a way to deconstruct systems of power, history, nar- historical narratives and so on. But when the Indians took over, when the Indians imported this postmodernism, they started deconstructing Hinduism with it. Yeah. It was, it was intended to deconstruct the dominant culture against uh, to help the colonized culture, to, to to deconstruct the colonizer. But what this did is in India they came and said Hinduism is a colonizer, the Dalit is a colonized. You see. So it got twisted, and that is what we are dealing with today, is is this postmodern thought applied against Hinduism on behalf of the real Indians, although not the real or not the Aryans, so called Aryans, but the real Indians. So this has become very dangerous. This use of this imported postmodernist thought put into this convoluted Indian context has become a very dangerous thing. So, um, I will have to stop because my time is says uh, 30 seconds. So, I, I will close. But I have uh, a lot to say on this and, uh, and what I, what I, uh, uh, I hope this is the start of a conversation that we can continue uh, uh, through books, writings, blogs. I welcome you to join my discussion group. If you leave your email ID, give you me your card or on a piece of paper, I can join you. I can put you in that. Uh, and uh, there are many modes in which I, uh, I exchange, uh, you know, information and keep going with people who are interested in these topics. And I am always interested in such discussions, debates, conversations with people of all the, diff- all the different kind of cultures, Christians, Jews, uh, Marxists, Muslims, anyone. Uh, who is interested in such a conversation. Because uh, we are in an, in a world where such conversations are very important. The danger is not having the conversation and, and being quiet and internally kind of having ferment in different camps. It's very important for serious thinkers to talk to each other, to exchange ideas, to be very open and honest about what bothers them. And uh, this uh, means that the community has to Not the Hindu community in this country has to come out of this mode that, you know, to be American either we have to deny our identity because that is not the case. I mean, there are Hispanic Americans, Jewish Americans, Irish Americans, they can be Indian Americans. There is no reason not to. And has also got to uh, feel, stop feeling that uh, showing difference is un-American, you know. And so, we have to downsize, dilute our distinctiveness because what we bring, to the American tapestry of diversity is exactly because we are different. It is who we are as Hindus, as Buddhists, as, you know, various kinds of Indian people. It is our distinctiveness and, and our rich heritage and how we, uh, we are different in these ways of thinking and, and, uh, and our, uh, you know, values which we bring here and enrich America. So, I'm very glad to see such a large turnout And I wish to thank you for coming. Namaste.